Amen, friends. If you would grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, if this is your first Sunday here, welcome. We're going through a short series right now called Sojourners. And we're going through the book of 1 Peter, sort of just section by section. And we're into chapter 4 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you know, consider that an invitation to start bringing your own print Bible to church every Sunday so you can be underlining and taking notes uh, during our time together. And if you don't have one, that's okay. The passage will just be right on the screen to either side of me. Uh, so with that in mind, we're looking this morning at uh, what First Peter says about our calling in this life and what God calls us to do and to be and to become. And we're looking at First Peter chapter 4. Uh, read with me in verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves in the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Uh, friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. And let me just say right off the bat, I'm very proud of everybody in the room because you were all looking at the passage or looking at me. And amazingly, no one's looking out through the windows right now. I have so much, you get so much moral credit from me right now for not just like, uh, you know, like looking at the beautiful snow. So you can look at the snow later today, but uh, let's have a seat and let's pray and let's look at this passage. Okay. And uh, if you, if your eyes gaze towards the snow, know that I love you and I forgive you and I get it too. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that you give each one of us a calling, and Lord, we pray that we would hear it as from your very spirit today. Uh, Father, we come before you wanting to learn from you, knowing that you are the author of life, and you lead to the greatest human flourishing. Uh, Father, we know that, and we believe it, and we yearn to flourish, and for our world to flourish in your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we dive into uh, our callings, uh, you know, have you ever found yourself, you know, asking, what am I supposed to do with my life? Anyone ever ask yourself that? I mean, like, really ask yourself that? You know, I mean, if you're, uh, you know, in high school, you're probably wondering about what am I supposed to do with my life? Why does my grandparent, why do they always ask me about what am I going to do with my life? I don't know. I'm still thinking about it, right? Uh, there's that pressure we feel when we're young to figure out what we're supposed to do with our life. And then uh, if we're in college or we're trying to figure out the next step for our employment, you know, that's a constant question you, you kick around with your friends and your family and your professors. What am I supposed to do? What is the calling on my life? Uh, you know, and, and then when you have a job and, you know, you have a family, you know, you're still 
asking that. Am I in the right job? Am I in the right community? Am I in the right church? Am I in the right home? You know, what, is, what am I supposed to do? What is my life supposed to look like? You know, and then, of course, as you get older, uh, you may hit that season where you're an empty nester, right? And then you really wonder what you're supposed to do because hopefully your kids are all grown up and well-adjusted and doing things with their life. So, you know, you lived for your family. Now what? Now what is life supposed to be like? Maybe you've hit the top of the, you know, the hierarchy in your office. Now what? Or, you know, maybe you didn't and you never will hit the hierarchy in your office and you never did get that super satisfying job that you always wanted. You've realized you've hit your ceiling. Well, now, what is life supposed to look like? What am I really supposed to do with my life? And then, of course, as you get older, you know, and as your body starts to fail and maybe your spouse starts to go down or you start to be, uh, as a single person, taking care of your ailing family members or parents, there's that creeping sense of what life is supposed to look like now. It's not exactly clear to me. And of course, all those questions are, are being brought up, right, in light of the pandemic because people are losing their jobs and we're away from families and it's just a strange time. What am I supposed to be doing with my life? I'll never forget uh, the first time someone, uh, you know, really talked to me about that. Back when I was a, uh, a young pastor, uh, now I'm an old pastor with gray hair. Back when I was, you know, younger and didn't have as many gray hairs, years ago, uh, I remember talking to my friend Dan, who was a doctor. And uh, he was a great guy. Uh, you know, he worked all through medical school. He had three wonderful teenagers that were all sort of older, uh, you, know, higher you know, higher high school years. And, uh, you know, uh, he seemed to have it all. He had this beautiful wife, this cool house. They were very hospitable. They had these, you know, three seemingly you know, well-adjusted children that seemed to like their parents. And uh, I remember, he, you know, he was bald, so I guess he had that going against him, I guess, which is why he was thinking about it. And he said, you know, I've been thinking about death a lot lately, and I just don't really know what my life is supposed to be. And I said, that's crazy. I mean, like, you have it all. You're a doctor. You have this home. You have this beautiful family. What are you talking about? And he said, well, all the things that I wanted to achieve in life, I've done. I went to medical school. I paid off medical school. I had kids and, you know, I've been looking at my life insurance policy and thinking, hmm, that's pretty good. <laughs> if I were to pass away, my family would be pretty much taken care of. I don't really know what I'm supposed to be living for. And it struck me that there was the guy who had what I wanted to have. And what he was saying is, isn't there something more? Is there really all there is? I mean, who here doesn't really kind of wrestle with what am I supposed to really be doing with my life? Uh, well, uh, I, can't, I can't recap the whole book of 1 Peter, uh, but what I want you to get right now is where we are in this book is sort of in a turn in the book. Uh, so a lot of the letters in the New Testament, uh, they'll write, and it'll be an introduction, hey, it's so-and-so, I'm writing to you. They'll start off with some kind of doxology about how great God is, and then it'll explain the gospel that Christ came, he suffered for us, uh, that God loves this world so much that despite its sin, he entered this world as a person and as a poor person without a home, Jesus. And then uh, as soon as he entered this world, this broken world tried to kill him as a baby and the world didn't stop trying to kill him until they finally accomplished it and they crucified him and his best friends, his disciples abandoned him. Then yet he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead three days later. Why? Why is, why, what's going on? Well, God is taking the punishment we deserved in Jesus Christ. And then he is showing us the incredible forgiveness that the God of all creation has, that he doesn't count our sins against us. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. 
And then he's showing us that he's going to make all things new in this world, uh, whether it is a broken body or a person who is dead and buried uh, or is a person struck by disability. All things will be made new when Jesus returns, and he'll make all of the sad things come untrue. I've heard this is, this is the gospel message, right? And almost every letter in the New Testament talks about that. But then what you need to know about the New Testament is within a few chapters, after they've sort of explained the gospel message, the life-changing news that Jesus brings, it will then shift in tone and it'll go into sort of, so what am I supposed to do in light of the gospel? Okay, let's say I believe that. Now what am I supposed to do? And what the Bible will do, just like First Peter's gonna do, is he's gonna start listing, well, here are the things to do, and then here are some things to stop doing. <laughs> and I worry sometimes that if people come to church or they think about Christianity, they think of it as a list of rules. Here are the things to do, here are the things not to do. And what I wanna say is, well, all of, the, all of those exhortations, they're all founded on grace. Um, it's not do this and God will love you. It's God loves you, look what he has done for you, and now live like a person who is loved by God. You know, live like a free person. This is what a free person lives like. You've been set free from sin and condemnation and now live like somebody who's been brought into the family. Stop living and acting like an orphan. You know, you've got our last name, you're in the family, live like it. So I hope that makes sense because we're gonna go through some things in this passage that Peter's gonna say we need to stop doing and he's gonna say some things we need to start doing. But it's not that we're saying, well, you know, do this and God will love you. It's the exact reverse of that. It's God loves you, therefore, this is how loved people live. Does that distinction make sense? Are you tracking with what I'm saying? It's an important distinction. Uh, it's the difference between a relationship with Jesus and a religion of works, right? Do this and God will, will love you. Have your good outweigh your bad versus look what Jesus did for you. You know, <laughs> we like to say the gospel here is two simple messages. You remember what this is? Cheer up. You're worse than you think, and cheer up, you're more loved than you dare imagine, right? This is a simple gospel message. So what are we supposed to do? All that build up, what am I supposed to do? Well, if you're wondering what you're supposed to be doing with your life, this is God's calling on you. I'm gonna give you three things, and I hope you see them in the passage. The first one is that you and I, you and me, we are called to live for God's will. Did you catch it right there? It's in verse two. Uh, you know, whoever ceased from sin so that we live the rest of the time in the flesh, that's like, you know, the, while we still have a body, we're supposed to live this life not for human passions, but for the will of God. So what does it mean to really live for God's will? Well, right there, let's look at verse one. Uh, you know, he's preaching the gospel right there. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Well, there's the gospel. Knowing that Jesus died for us, right? Knowing the gospel, right? Because that's true. That's how much God loves us. Okay, knowing the gospel, what am I supposed to do? Well, the first thing he says is what? Arm yourselves. Did you see that? It's a military term. Arm yourself with what? Bullets and ammunition and a stockpile in case things go south. Is that what he says? What does he say? Is that, is that how we're supposed to arm ourselves as we live in a fallen world? What he says is arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Meaning arm yourself, prepare yourself to live for Jesus uh, not by amassing weapons, but by having the mentality of Jesus Christ, having the way of thinking that Jesus did. Think with the mind of Christ. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. If Jesus suffered in this life because this world is messed up, I'm going to suffer in this life because it's messed up. 
but Jesus endured because he trusted in God as Father. And we are going to suffer in this life, but we also are going to follow Jesus and trust that he will get us through anything. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. It means that we see Jesus as the example to follow, not just, you know, our Savior who saves our souls, but as the person who actually gives us a model for how to live our day-to-day life. It's a, it's a mentality. So what is that mentality, right? Well, look there, he says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, what does Peter mean by that? You know, some people would say, well, what Peter's saying is if you have, you know, given uh, up on your life of sin and you've come to Jesus, you're done with sin. You never, ever sin ever again, right? Has anyone ever met somebody like that? I, when I was in college, we used to have this guy, this holiness preacher, and it was awesome because he was, it was like watching a train wreck in slow motion a whole week long, and he would just yell at everybody and condemn them. He made my roommate break down in tears. I'll never forget how funny it was. He called him a sinner, <laughs> and my friend was totally a sinner, but for some reason, it really, it really messed with my roommate, uh, but he, 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 he held to this belief that he never sinned. As soon as he became a Christian, he was utterly morally perfect, and it's like, what? Where do you get that? Well, some people think this verse, that's what it's teaching. You know, if you've suffered for Christ, if you're really serious about it, you'll cease from sin. But I don't really think that's what Peter's point is. You know, other passages suggest that we're never really perfect. We're never really done with sin until we die and we meet the Lord. We're constantly hounded uh, by the old ways of life. You know, we're constantly um, having to battle not just the external battle, but this internal battle. You know, um, you know, as an analogy in the Old Testament, God, you know, saved his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them out of slavery. And there were still times that their hearts yearned for Egypt. It's an analogy that when God calls you out of sin and out of your old way of life and brings you into his promised land, into eternal life with him, you're always going to sort of have this part of your heart that yearns to go back to the old ways. And what does God tell his people? Well, in the Old Testament, he says, you're never going back to Egypt. You're never going back there. And what Peter is telling us is we need to give up on our old ways of life. We're not going back there. We have to follow the upward call of God to a new life that is beautiful. And it's true. And it is good. Right? So what does it mean that those people who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin then? Well, what does that mean? Um, I think the, the best way to understand what Peter is getting at is it sounds counterintuitive. So I, so I apologize if this seems counterintuitive to you, but I think what Peter's getting at is if you have suffered in this life, you know, whether it's been because this world is broken and messed up or because you have suffered for the name of Jesus, uh, whatever you have suffered in this life, there is an aspect of suffering that sobers you up to the lies of this world and the culture. Um, there is, when you suffer, there is a sobering reality that most people aren't aware of about how hard this life can be. And because you see reality, because of your suffering, you realize that a lot of the things that this culture sells as true and good and beautiful is really just marketing and pandering. And it's just a bunch of fluff. Uh, You know, think about it this way. Um, Maybe this makes sense, you know, but Think about it this way. You know, I think it's, it's the veteran who's been to war who yearns for peace, right? It's the brash private or whoever who has never been to war that wants to rush to the glory of war. But for those who have been there, they know the beauty of peacetime. 
right? Or think about it this way. Uh, it's, re you know, the Bible talks about being sober-minded. It doesn't mean you don't ever drink alcohol. What it means is we, where we don't drink to get drunk and we're not controlled by it. And for some people, that sounds like God's a cosmic killjoy. But think about it this way. Only, really, really, only a recovered alcoholic can really know the beauty of sobriety. Only the spouse of a recovered alcoholic knows the beauty of sobriety in their spouse. That it's not about not having fun. It's about, I want this person back. When you have suffered in this life, you cease from being allured by sin. You know, the spouse of the alcoholic has, has no time for the beer commercials, right? I'm not saying all alcohol is bad, but there is a sobriety, right? There's a realization that our suffering leads where sin doesn't have quite as much allure to us. You know, um, it's the mother of a miscarried child, right, that knows that nothing in this life is really going to satisfy or heal that wound. So the marketing is just not going to work on me because the only thing that I really want is heaven. That's what I want. There, there's a way that suffering leads you to thinking about sin and deception in this world differently. You know, it's the, it's the person struggling with PTSD that knows the beauty of a simple morning just with their family, with nothing to do. <laughs> you know, somebody caught in the world, oh, what a boring day. <laughs> the person who's recovered from PTSD says, no, that's everything I've ever wanted is just to be present and have a simple life. So I think what Peter is saying is because the gospel is true, we're called to live for God's will. And part of living for God's will means that, um, you know that old hymn, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Um, I would actually suggest that the exact opposite is true in Christianity. This world does not become more dim. It goes into like high definition <laughs> and we see the world for what it truly is. Uh, that's what it means to follow in God's will is we see the world for what it is. This is a hard world. It offers me nothing of value that will ultimately last. And at the end of the day, all I really have and all you really have is your relationship with God and the lives of people that you invest in. Everything else is marketing and it's all going away. It's all going away at some point. Your favorite pair of jeans? Well, you probably don't even fit into them anymore because of COVID. I know I don't, right? <laughs> it's all going away. All that you have in this life is your relationship with the Lord and the lives of people that you invest in. And um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is the only people who have ears to hear that are probably people who have really suffered to the point that they see the world for what it really is. And they, they yearn for something true and something real. And what, what Peter says is that's God's will. That's what's good and true and beautiful is living in this life in the way that the author of life has prescribed for us, right? It's, it's living in the created world in the way that the creator told us that would lead to the greatest human thriving, uh, human flourishing. So, you know, God's will, um, you, know, how, you know, what does God want for you? Um, you know, years ago, I used to work at a church that met on a college campus. So we did all kind of ministry to college students, right? And it was great because, you know, college students, they all, they all predictably have the same questions like we all did back when we were like 20, right? We said, what am I supposed to do with my life? Do my friends hate me? Who am I going to marry? You know, why do I hate my parents? And then by the end of college, like, actually, my parents are pretty smart, I guess, you know. Uh, so we all have these sort of key questions, uh, you know. But I think what struck me about 
uh, talking to those college students for so many years is so many of them had the same basic question, which was, what is God's will for my life? You know, what does God want me? Anyone ever ask that question? You don't have to be 20 to ask that question. What is God's will for my life? And, um, you know, my mentor at that time uh, changed my life because he said, you know what, friends, that, that is, that's the wrong question to ask. It's not start off with my life and then try to like figure out what God wants me to do as if God has like hidden his will and it's very mysterious what I'm supposed to do with my life. Uh, it's actually in reverse. Actually, the question you and I should be asking is how am I giving my life to God's will? See, that's a subtle difference, but it's big. The first question assumes that God's will is like mysterious, that it's hard to figure out. And that the baseline is my life and my plans. And how do I make sure I'm in line? The second question, how am I giving my life to God's will? Totally changes the outlook of your life. You know, I mean, some people are like, well, what does God want me to do? Does he want me to change my job? Does he want me to buy a retirement home? Does he want me to choose this career? Well, I think for a Christian, the question really becomes, how are you using your intellect, uh, your capabilities, so that people are blessed by your hard work. Because God wants you to do your work as unto the Lord, right? He wants you to love your neighbor by working really hard. I mean, you know, when you think about your work, some people don't think it's very spiritual, but it's as spiritual as it gets because it's your primary way of loving your neighbor. I mean, if you, if you don't think your job matters because you just make widgets, right? I just, I'm in a widget machine and that's all I do, I just make widgets. Well, somebody needs those widgets to work. And they will never maybe meet you, but they love and appreciate when your widget works. So when you make widgets, you are doing it out of love for the person who's going to use your product. It's out of love for those people. That's how you love your neighbor is you work hard. I mean, think about it this way. You know, if you go into an auto mechanic shop and you want them to fix your car and they don't fix it, you'd be like, why don't you love me? <laughs> Just love me enough to do what I paid you to do, right? And we all know when good mechanics do that right? That, that's a way of seeing our jobs as a way of loving God by loving and serving our neighbor, right? So God's will is not well, asking well, always, well, what, is, what job does God want me to do? You know, it could be say, well, what has God put in your life? Are you a student? Well, do that for God's will. Be a student in a way that you don't drive your teachers crazy, <laughs> right? Honor your teachers, learn, work hard, use the mind that God gave you. Do you have a job? Well, maybe God's calling you to a different job or a different community, but until he does, work as hard as you can and invest as much as you can right where God has placed you, right? So you have work to do. Everybody does. You have some kind of family. You have some kind of home. Maybe you're married. The question is not, what does God want me to do? The question is, are you using all of these things in your life to bring God glory? Should I buy a second vacation home? Is that God's will for my life? I don't know. You know what you need to answer? Are you using your finances to bring God glory? Using your finances to bring God glory. That's how you answer those questions. Are you in a job? Are you using that job to honor and serve those who depend on you? It makes sense. God's will is not mysterious or far out. It's actually incredibly clear. It's right in front of you, right? If you have kids at home, what are you supposed to do? <laughs> Love your kids. Pray for them. Teach them the truths of the gospel. You know, be forgiving. Show them what Jesus was like. That's your calling. Uh, you don't have to wonder what's out there. It may honestly just be right in front of you. 
you know, the Bible goes on and it gives a bunch more things, you know, about what, it, what God's will is, you know, um, you know, some people come up to Jesus and, you know, it's sort of another way of answering the question. Um, people come up to Jesus and say, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do to be doing the works that God would have us to do? And what, how does Jesus respond? Does he say, well, here's the Ten Commandments. Do that and maybe your good will outweigh your bad. Actually, it says in John 6, 28, he says, if you want to do the works of God, believe in him whom he has sent. So, what does it mean to do God's will? Well, it means to believe in Jesus Christ, that he is God come to save us all and show us how to live in this world. It means to believe in Jesus. It means to live not for the things of this world, but to live for him alone, even right down to the nitty-gritty of your schoolwork and your daily work, right? The diapers that you change, right? I mean, what child doesn't need their parents to do a good job changing diapers? Doesn't seem all that spiritual, but you better believe that baby needs you to love it enough to change the diapers well, right? And that's you loving the child. That makes sense? Of course, there's more that the Bible will say, uh, but one key thing that is repeatedly said in the New Testament that is one of God's wills, you know, if, or the will of God, uh, is we're supposed to be sexually pure. And, you know, that may make some people uncomfortable, but 1 Thessalonians says this. Uh, these are some helpful key words. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says this. For this is the will of God. <laughs> there it is. If you want to know what God's will for your life is, here it is. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. And let no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Notice that part of God's will is that you and I would be sexually pure. And, you know, you know we, we're combating this idea in the world that God is some kind of like cosmic killjoy, that he doesn't want you to have fun, he doesn't want you to have sex, the Bible is boring, you know, all this, you know, misunderstandings of Christianity. I mean, if you think the Bible's boring, I mean, it talked about some pretty colorful things in our passage. <laughs> it's kind of hard to talk about in polite company, right? The Bible talks about interesting things, we just may not always like what the Bible has to say. But this is a key component of living in God's will, is that we would see our bodies and not just our souls as dedicated to him. And God has standards for how we are supposed to live and live in our sexual lives. And part of that means trusting that his word leads us to the greatest human flourishing. And so, you know, what does that mean? Well, you know, he talks about drinking parties, which are very sensual. And, you know, he talks about other things in our passage. I won't read out loud because there's like, years younger than 10 years old here. <laughs> but notice that what Peter is getting at is what, um, it's a different message about sexuality than our world will give. And I think like the best word that our world has to offer now is the idea of consensual sex, that that's the standard. It's consensual. As long as everyone in the drinking parties is all in agreement, then it's all, it's all fair game, as long as there's no judgment. But notice that all throughout the Bible, in the way that God has designed your soul to thrive, he's designed sex to be covenantal sex. It's covenantal sex that we stand for, not merely consensual. That there's something unique about the union between a man and a woman who are equal, that are the same and yet distinct, that come together in a covenant, in a vow to each other, that this is the glue that's gonna hold this marriage together because life is very hard that it's a covenantal view that's holy, 
And I mean, the Bible even say that that points to uh, the incredible union between Christ and the way that he loves us. We're distinct and yet we are co-heirs with Christ. And he's brought us up into the heavenlies with him. You know, what we stand for is covenantal sex, not just merely consensual. And of course, that's gonna put us on the wrong side of a lot of people's opinions. It doesn't matter how compassionately we say it, doesn't matter how much we love people who disagree with us, people are gonna malign us and dislike us because of that. And it was, it's not just true because of the sexual revolution of the 70s. That has been true since the beginnings of Christianity and on back even into the Old Testament. I mean, look at what Peter's telling Christians 2,000 years ago. For the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and all those awful things. And when people come to Christ, they stop doing that. They repent. But notice what he says in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So part of living for God's will means, unfortunately, in this life, we're going to suffer and people are going to, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, speak ill of us. And all throughout First Peter, remember, Peter says, don't be a jerk for Jesus and expect God to be happy with you if you're a jerk to everybody, right? He says, if you're going to suffer, suffer as a Christian. Uh, suffer because you are loving people. Suffer because you are submitting to the rulers. Suffer because even if they mistreat you, you can love them in return, right? The ethic of a Christian is that we don't hate our enemies. We love our enemies and pray for them, right? Jesus says, if somebody slaps you on a cheek, do what? sue them and, and malign them online. Is that what he says? Cancel them. No, what he says is turn the other cheek. There's this incredible ethic of love and compassion, even for our enemies, that defines Jesus and defines Christianity because we recognize that at one point we were all God's enemies. We are all sinners before God. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so that's how we engage people who don't know Christ. Uh, you know, Martin Luther, you know that great German reformer? I love Martin Luther. He was so awesome. And one of the things that he said was, uh, Christians, Christians are beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. You hear what he's saying in that? He's saying Christians are beggars telling other beggars where the free food line is, right? Where's the food? You know, we, you know we, we're not bakers, you know, we're not people who just look down on each other and say, well, you know, I've come down to give you the baked goods. You know, we're beggars telling other beggars where to find the bread, right? Does that make sense? All right, so I'll just keep going, right? So this is what, this is all like unpacking what it means for God's will to be known to you. So I'll, I'll go to the next one. So the next thing to maybe uh, think about, right, is um, we need to li live with the end in mind. And what I mean by that is right there in verse 7, Peter brings up this idea that uh, the end of all things is at hand, which uh, we believe that Jesus is going to return one day, that our world is storied, that God created a good world, it fell into sin, he started the process of redeeming it, and one day God's going to come back and make all things new. And part of that also means that we're all going to have to stand before God and give an account for how we've lived in this life. And we don't tell that to people to condemn them. We do it compassionately. And we're all going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account for what we have done in the body, whether good or ill. That's what 1 Corinthians says. Uh, Peter talks about it right there, that we're all going to have to stand and give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so we're, what we, how do we respond to that? Well, 
We live with the end in mind that sobers us up. You know, it makes us think differently about things. And uh, here's that sort of like, here's what not to do, here's what to do. Here's where this comes into play. Because Peter's gonna go through this cool list of things starting in verse seven, of things we should be doing, right? He kind of listed the things we need to cease from doing. Uh, so, uh, and they all kind of correspond. So in the first list, he says, stop living for sensuality and, and passion. And he says, instead, embrace self-control, right? It's not that we live sexless lives, it's just simply that we see covenantal sex as what God has designed. And then instead of like living for drunkenness, right, we live sober-mindedly, right? That doesn't mean you are never ever supposed to touch alcohol. What it means is, you know, there's a, there's a point where we take it too far. We become too drunk, right? Uh, so think soberly. And then instead of sexual immorality, what he says is to love one another earnestly, to love one another earnestly. And then instead of, you know, drinking parties, well, you still have parties in your house and you have people over, but it's about hospitality. And it's hospitality without grumbling, uh, which means you have people in your home, you make room for their life, and you do it generously. And when you're generous with your food and your time, you don't, you know, say, oh, they're eating all of my dessert, right? You are hospitable, right? So there's this beautiful life to embrace and the one to leave behind. You know, and it's all possible, I guess, and I hope because we all know that Christ is returning to judge this world and we want to be found in him. So the last thing, I'll just finish up with this. And I think you kind of get where Peter's going. I hope you do. Because he goes on in verse 10 and he says, you know, the other calling that we have, uh, besides the calling to live for God's will, right, is also we have a calling to use our gifts to live in community with one another. Did you catch that? Look at verse 10, he says, as each one has received a gift, meaning like your unique abilities, your talents, your resources, your experiences, um, the ways that God's spirit has given you a heart for compassion or a heart for the poor or the ability to teach or the you know, desire uh, to walk with people through suffering, whatever those gifts are, uh, in God's world, he has created a people group that are meant to use their gifts to bless others. And it's all different. It's all grace. These are all gifts that we didn't earn. And it's varied. You know, that's the word that Peter uses, meaning like my gifting is not your gifting and your gifting is not your neighbor's gifting. We're all meant as God's people to use the things that we have for the glory and the benefit of others, right? And there's no hierarchy in the household of God. You know, it's not like the pastors and the elders are up here and everybody else is down here. You know, the image is of a family and a household of faith. And, you know, some people have different callings. That doesn't mean anyone is better than the other. We just all have different giftings. But notice that the, the hope is that we're all using our gifts and our resources. So let me see if I can kind of pull all these things together, right? So I started off by asking you, do you know what to do with your life? You know, what am I supposed to do? Have you ever asked yourself that? And what I'm suggesting to you is that the Bible's answer is not really that concerned about which college or which career or which vacation home. Rather, the Bible's answer is say, well, believe in Jesus Christ. Repent and live for his will because it will lead to the greatest human flourishing. Uh, there is a beauty of life with God that is simple and you've always yearned for, right? Live for God's will. Uh, know that the end is coming. One day Christ will return. Let that shape how you live. And then lastly, part of your calling is to use the ways that God has gifted you for the encouragement and the benefit of others. Uh, you know, so if you have skills, are you using those to benefit other people? 
Uh, do you have a burden and a capability? Are you using it here in this congregation and in your neighborhood and in your places of work? You know, friends, if you do those things, um, you may actually find that you start to understand God's actual calling on your life. And you may not ask the same kind of questions anymore. Now, friends, that's the invitation to hear God's call on your life. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for your word, that it is true and we can trust it. Uh, Father, I pray that everyone in this room has ears to hear uh, what your word has to say. Lord, that we would trust it and that we would respond. Uh, Father, uh, we know uh, one day this world will end. We don't know when that's going to be. Lord, we know that we are one day closer than we were yesterday. And so, Father, we pray that as we get ready to take communion, Lord, that we would understand that you would have us follow your son, Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we would each know our calling. Amen.